What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I've got Lucy Cochran. Lucy is a nomadic, uh, a moving around head of strategy who spent a lot of time, a lot of time in Australia. She's, uh, she ran the or led the APG, the account planning group in, in Melbourne. Uh, the account planning group is one of the few institutions in the world, uh, originally from England, that actually tries to get people to appreciate planning and teach planners, build a community around planning. Uh, she's won a ton of effectiveness awards. She co-chaired the IPA strategic planning course in Melbourne as well. And we are going to set ourselves a task of trying to talk about 20 challenges that face planners and planning in the next 40 minutes. Welcome, Lucy. Hello. Let's start with the big and obvious one. In your experience, I mean, you're, I guess, a couple of decades into a planning career. What are some of the challenges that planning faces as far as people in the agency or clients wanting it as part of paid projects? And I think of that, I think about when I first was a planner and I think it's the ambiguity of planning that gets stuck on people. It's half an output. It's not the full output. So can people can never really see exactly what it is. And I think as a young person, I mean, I certainly was like this, I was always thinking, what is it that I'm actually doing? And is this the right thing? Is this the same at another agency? And because it doesn't have that same tangibility, I think sometimes we can't really value it. What are some techniques that you've tried to implement to solve for the ambiguity that you're talking about? A mantra I always had with my departments was, no one doesn't value you if you're useful. So like aim to be useful in every single meeting or interaction that you have. And then all of a sudden you find yourself being invited back to all of those meetings. And then all of a sudden you find you're being valued. And then there you go, problem solved. I know it sounds very simple, but... Um, I guess it's being flexible about what that usefulness looks like and understanding that it's not always, oh, you know, this warrants a big brand strategy and make my time to like shine. Sometimes being useful might be about nudging trends or finding a different way in or fighting for more time for creatives. Sometimes, you know, even that can be a really useful thing or um, it's basically being the outputs champion of I always think is this getting to better effective work what can I do in order to do to get more effective work what you can do to get that output looks very different every day yeah I think a really simple technique is especially when you're not sure what's useful because that takes some time and even then you might be guessing is to be honest about that and go you know what I think there are these these three things that I found they seem interesting and useful to me I wrote them on a piece of paper or I took a screenshot and they're up on the wall what do you what do you think Basically, I think that collaborative way of working is a really great way to come across as useful because you're not pretending that you're the owner of every decision and what's intelligent and what's smart and you're basically adding value by, you know, here are 10 different solutions or and these two are the thing, two, these two are the solutions that I think are the best ones for these reasons. And then if people buy into that, then that's great. And they might see something else on the wall and say, I think that's really interesting. So it's a really great way of being collaborative and useful at the same time. Yeah, I love that thought about you aren't the owner of what's smart, that you're a channel, that things go through you. And other people's ideas in the room, they can go through you. Uh, Look, I hear a little bit that a lot of people in strategy roles don't believe that agency leadership supports strategy and they find themselves a bit lonely or or flailing in the Why is that a problem for strategists in agencies that have hired strategists? Yeah, I've been reasonably lucky with that. I think in my first job, I had to, we had to create the planning department. It was, this will make me seem like really old. But when I first had my first job interview, 
they said, what do you want to do in five years? I was going for like an account manager role. I said, I want to be a planner. And the CEO of this agency said, what's, what's a planner? And, but a year later, he promoted me as a planner and we had to kind of create the, create the department and prove ourselves. And the account service team were like, you're taking the best part of our job. There was a bit of conflict, a lot of research that we did to sort of prove our worth. But in general, I haven't actually experienced too much of the um, not being valued. I think times when I haven't been listened to, I've pointed out and people say this is it's a crazy thing to do, but I don't really care. I've said, hey, do you know how much you pay our planning department? Like that is a crazy thing to pay for when you're not going to listen to us. Like Because planners are expensive. My, I kind of put it back on them and say, hey, we're like, we obviously value us if we're in, the, in buying into who's worth what. If you want to pay us that, then you, if you need to kind of listen to what we have to say. Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting technique. Uh, <laughs> On the blast. It's like, yeah. yeah, you've got all these smart people and you pay them for it. Just I don't know why you wouldn't take their advice. Self-reflection is a good place to go with that too. Like, okay, if they're not listening to us, then what are we doing wrong? Is it the way we're doing it or are we being too instructive? Are we not giving them enough room or we're not being inspiring enough or and just being open about it and talking to them about it what can we what can we do better so a little self-reflection and a little reverse psychology or d- daring <laughs> I'm like, well you're yeah. paying for this okay number three number three strategy roles and planning roles are appearing in more types of companies and in more companies than ever and i do think there is a lot of feeling out there some resentment that people are strategists are taking the best part of someone's job when you enter a company and you have a feeling that that's what's going on how can someone navigate that by working collaboratively, by being open and you don't, I think it's this sort of problem, isn't it, that planners get told that you're really smart and insightful and so there's this pressure to kind of be the smart and insightful person in the room but I think you need to take that pressure off yourself and I've seen really brilliant planners that aren't particularly insightful but they're really great facilitators and so I guess it's about finding, you know, what kind of planner you want to be but not being not being afraid of looking wrong and taking on other people's opinions and taking that in. I think that's an issue not just with our industry, but an issue with the world that we don't like being wrong as people. And being wrong is one of the coolest things in the world because it means you're learning and you're growing. So I think we need to, you know, to celebrate that and to celebrate people challenging you. And I think that comes off as less threatening. It's funny to think about the idea of being wrong as a lead indicator as opposed to an ending, but that does depend on the culture one's in. Have you ever had to navigate a culture that is very quick to judge thinking before it's happened? So we'll treat this as number four. What, what can someone do when they're in a culture that only wants to see absolute answers with full confidence and is very suspicious of early thinking? You're just not professional if you don't come with the entire point of view and you have to get that point of view through 10 other departments in your own agency before it even sees public light of day. Uh, I find that really tricky because I, I just still look at that and go, that's so stupid. And, you know, think of potential of anything of a, you know, if you, this is a, this metaphor might not work at all. If you've got to have a baby and you write out its whole life in a PowerPoint presentation, yeah, it could be great, but it's going to, you're going to miss so many other opportunities along the way. I just maybe talk about and what the things that the opportunities that are lost in that situation but I'm also I understand that there's cultures that that's what they need and I think in that situation I would maybe run something as more of a workshop and as though it's like more of a collaborative kind of situation and so we're working together a little bit more but maybe we've got more of an idea of different areas we want to get to. How can someone navigate a culture that is suspicious of plain talk for instance, in my first role here, I, I wrote something and it was called folksy and it didn't seem like a compliment. 
Yeah, I guess people hide behind crazy, complicated jargon. I'm pretty open in calling bollocks on a lot of stuff. I mean, in in terms of not so much the measurement and so forth world, but just even in planning world, there's words that I just am like, we can't have that. Like we can't use empowerment in our strategy. It's meaningless or it's lost meaning. Authentic, which I know is a complicated one, a controversial one. (laughs) I feel like it can mean anything. I mean, if you've read like authenticity, like the whole world is myths. We've made up everything, capitalism, the economy, human rights, everything's a myth, which they talk about in that book, Sapiens, which is amazing. Brands are myths that we create. There's this set of perceptions. And so what's authentic about that? You, there's no such thing as authenticity. We create these myths and I think we should own that rather than pretending there's some realness. I guess it's just about give, giving people confidence with speaking simply. And, you know, I would love a world where you presented your strategies on one A4 sheet of paper. And if I was a client, I would probably say that. So stuff that I know that's completely lower land, but don't spend four hours in the studio making this presentation look beautiful. Just put the thinking down on a piece of paper. The industry is very confused at the moment. There's this, um, you know, complete panic over the last five, ten years about digital and data and what it means. And um, something I always like to remind people of is everything's changed, but the ultimate machine that processes advertising, communication in the world hasn't changed in 10,000 years, and that's the human brain. But if we don't understand and connect to that, the human brain, which processes advertising in exactly the same way it did a hundred years ago, then yeah, I try and often try and bring it back to that. Okay. Uh, number six, you mentioned the phrase calling bollocks, which for people who aren't familiar with that phrase means, <laughs> means calling nonsense or BS on something. Do you have two or three phrases that you find yourself using in collaboration as you're working with people either in, in the strategy department or in the creative department. Uh, an, an example that a creative director once told me is when an account person was immediately judging ideas, which shocked the creative director. The creative director paused and was about to respond and say, don't do that. And I, and I think instead said, just look, if you think you've seen it before, just say it looks familiar. That's a nicer way of saying it doesn't seem that original or that you don't like it. It's a bit more specific. Do you have any do you have two or three phrases? Oh, in okay. Using? Like ways of framing things that are a bit nicer. Oh, often, often with creative, this is specific to creative reviews, is when I don't like something, I replace it in my head as I don't understand why they got to that because they're not, you have to trust the creatives. You have to trust that they've sat in a room and they've sweated over it and they've thought about it. And they, don't, they want the same things you want. You all want to do good work that works. So you have to trust that. So rather than saying, oh, you missed that or don't, I don't like that or it's off brie, I've asked them what was their thinking that led to that idea. And often it's a friendlier way of, I guess, managing conflict. But mm. it's also really useful because quite often they'll say, they'll, get, they'll either say, explain it and then be like actually you're right it's actually really shit or um or the other thing is they'll say well what I was trying to do I was trying to play with this insight and then we got to that and then often what they say there's the halfway solution there might be a way to pivot off that like something in the journey that it might have just been like something in execution that's jarring so that would be uh, something I'd recommend yeah yeah I think the idea of 
because a lot of conversations do fall into into a battle or some some kind of dominance. I like I like that idea of uh, what led to that because that question is doing at least two things. One is trying to understand the first principles at play in that thinking and how that person thinks, so that hopefully you can respect that type of thinking and the actual principles behind the thinking that led there, and also trying to understand where did that come from and did it get where it was trying to get, and then potentially. Mm show different ways. I like that. Yeah. Workshopping is is something that can intimidate people in the first year or two. How can someone get good at, at running workshops? When you're starting out, really prepare minute by minute. Don't underestimate the amount of work that goes into a really well, a really productive workshop and, you know, consider everything, the time of the day, are people, are their blood sugar levels up? You know, people are more productive in the morning. They get angry when they don't eat. But then, you know, in the exercises, don't just run through the list, the brief or the list of problems, like use um, techniques or different strategies to get to a different answer. But, you know, be good at time management because there's nothing worse than you've got an eight-hour workshop and then the, the person running it, you look at the, the agenda and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon and they've got through sort of one-third of it. Kind of mm. thing. So. Yeah, even, even the idea of an eight-hour workshop might be too convenient and might ignore some science, but I guess that's the way that we've defined the modern working day. So mm. do like an eight to 11 one morning or nine to 12 one morning and then do that you know, in mornings and mornings, people get bad in the afternoon. They do. Uh, and even though I think people have different times of day where they're alert, the idea of having a bit of break between the thinking allows the brain to do some kind of reassembling through dreaming or through walking, mm. turning on the alpha brain waves. You also mentioned building relationships with creatives. What can make that difficult for a new strategist? Um, I guess it's intimidating. I mean, that's out of every meeting I've had, like the meeting I'm always most scared of and even now, and I find it's less scary now, but I almost want it to be the scary meeting is not when you're taking account service through the work or not even presenting to the client. It's the creative director. It's scary because they, they're the ones that truly call your strategy out if it's not up to scratch or not useful. But then in terms of, it goes back to that trying to be useful kind of thing and working collaboratively, that can, sharing thoughts before you come to the brief is, is probably a really useful way to get around that. But in terms of developing relationships with creatives, I guess they need to trust you and that you're, you've got their back. So there's other ways you can prove that trust them other than just the briefs or the strategies you write. It's being really smart about how you develop relationships with researchers, which I think if you have really strong relationships with your researchers and they're going to treat the work that's researched well, that they research a lot better and um, being really respectful about how any work's researched because, you know, creatives can't stand their work being researched. But, you know, making sure you've got the creatives back in all facets, I guess, you know, whether it's really helping them sell an idea or being open to them when they come up with great strategic thinking. Also showing to them that you're a creative person that's engaged in the world as well. As a younger planner, you should be completely engaged in, you know, obviously all of the work that's happening in the industry, but also, you know, what's happening creatively in like galleries. And I know it's cliche to say all that, but, you know, being engaged with cinema and culture and all of those things, if they know who you are as a creative person, not just the planner, then I think that's really good for your relationship. I'm going to call this nine, but it's really a build on that previous one. What if you're working in an agency where the creative department and many creatives are known for not valuing planning? Yeah, it's tricky. I I had a little bit of that somewhere recently. It was like a creative department and everyone had very different 
views on planning. You can lead a horse to water, right? You can't yet make it drink. If someone truly it doesn't value planning, I guess you just go in with trying to prove them wrong and that you are helpful in some way. Also, the other thing I've done in that situation is just talk, being open with them about it and saying, what what is it that you feel like you need from the planning department? Is it this particular person was, by having that conversation, he was very much said, I'm really sick of this emphasis on consumer insights and emotion I want product truths and I was like okay and then I sort of tried to introduce him to the well the evidence around you know why there's a shift towards you know all the evidence around emotional advertising and the long and the short of it and all of that sort of stuff which is probably not that exciting for the creatives we we kind of figured out that philosophically we believed in different kinds of advertising he's very sort of old old school in the way he saw advertising you know I just said to him okay I'm going to try you try and you know explore the product more and I guess it's just if you if you're open and you're trying if people can really not hate you that much surely yeah it, it's funny and a little sad <laughs> to, to, to think of the idea of dramatizing a product feature as being old school there's still a role for that but there is so much research about how emotions work and how insights help things get shared and a lot of the stuff that we share online reveals something about us according to research by Jonah Berger and hence the need for insights so with research Research is on my mind as we discuss. I've heard that there were some kind of glory days years ago where there'd be three to six to nine months to maybe more of planning time involving research and meetings and discussion and then a handful of ads might pop out the other end. These days, a lot of people who do strategy and planning work are under hour-by-hour pressure. If you had a day to work on a project, what would be your first research techniques? What would you do? The first thing I would do is... Uh, well, I would. It depends on what the problem is that's being defined. So, the first place I would look in terms of what do we, where do we start, is anything that the brand is associated with naturally. So, what, what are the spontaneous things that people associate with the brand? So that that you can see that in brand tracking, or you can that would be the very first, like what's your, in a qual situation, what's the first thing that you think of? And if you don't have those resources, then it might be by gut feel, which is dangerous because advertising people aren't the same as the normal people. But the reason I would go there is because the way the brain works is the brain likes to take in things that already agree with what it already believes and how it's being wired. And hence Fox News people watching Fox News all day and CNN people watching CNN all day. We don't like things that disagree with our brain. So if you come out with a brand communication that's really completely off what people already think, then it won't be a sort of taken in as readily so I think it's always a really smart doesn't mean you have to be completely a slave to that but I think if I was doing a strategy in one day if I wanted to capitalize on something I would look at what those media associations are and how can we build on them and elevate them yeah I think seeing planners moralize through strategy and adjudicating people that they don't know through insights is like it's such a toxic thing to do and it, it's and sometimes they get celebrated within an agency because it makes the group of planners and the, the broader team feel good about themselves but it doesn't lead to empathetic work it's the opposite of empathy do you mean like this is kind of like more like a lot of the purpose-driven work and things like that the sort of worthy work or are you talking about something no, different no i mean i've seen strategies like look so obviously in recent years people are talking about what's going on in politics whether it's brexit whether it's presidencies and things like that and and the idea that a group of people are dumb 
and that, yeah. that that's a problem that we should solve. Like that, that's like a flippant discussion that can pop up, but it's an example of avoiding understanding what's going on with those people, not seeking common ground and trying to judge them to yeah. make self, self feel good. Well, here's a, here's a lesson. <laughs> um, like, yeah, in psychology, we get taught this and it gets drummed into us about not judging people and that's a really useful thing for planners to do. And I see it in focus groups, you know, sitting behind the glass, rolling your eyes at people and it's, it's just really unhelpful. Okay, don't roll eyes. I like that as a piece of advice. I have never heard that piece of advice in the world <laughs> of planning, yet I have seen that behaviour. It's with clients as well. Like I would say, always respect that people aren't stupid. It's what you're saying with our consumers, but also with clients. I can't stand the kind of, oh, the client's an idiot. They don't know what they're talking about. And like they've clients are an idiot. They've got a degree. They've worked up to where they are and they've got their own issues. And just, yeah, being that kind of talk is not, it's not useful or constructive, I don't think. Okay. Two connected questions that build on that. What are useful techniques for a strategist to get to know a client? I think asking what work they love and what's their favourite piece of work that they've ever seen. And it's always the opposite of what they are willing to approve. Also finding out about what their issues are in terms of their business stresses. So asking about what's what's on their plate other than advertising and comms and brand. So um, I know I had a client that... Uh, the factory had broken down or something the morning we were presenting to her and you know it's really stressful and yeah so just again I guess it's about being empathetic to that and then also you're learning about their business their two things and and maybe even personal KPIs which some some people won't share maybe they're not even clear on it and with the first question what work do they love it's even more worrying when a person doesn't have an answer to that when you hear crickets yeah the second question connected to empathy is a lot of planners, even if they're rolling eyes and every now and then rolling eyes at the people with whom they're trying to communicate or with whom they're trying to work, a lot of planners, I think, struggle with having strong empathy for themselves, that they find this, this value in this abstract idea of a business or a brand while questioning themselves at all times. It's not everyone, but it's enough yeah. people. What are some techniques that someone can play with to have empathy for, for themselves and to understand themselves better? I certainly had my own long journey with that self-talk, but I think always reminding yourself that that questioning and that self-reflection and analysis makes you really great at your job. And even though it feels gross and it's annoying to kind of love it because it, it makes you better at your job, because if you're not that, then you're the arrogant person that never learns from anything I think when you're a young planner, you can think that everyone above you is perfect. I've spoken to a lot of young people about this, and I certainly felt it, that they don't have insecurities and they've got their shit together. They never get nervous because, you know, we all kind of have to project that on a day-by-day basis. What about managing planners? Are there a couple of things that someone new to managing planners could do? That's kind of where my... A lot of my satisfaction has come from in my sort of last few years is having great people that I've managed and that they've gone on to do great things. My tip with managing planners would be just always be really generous and be willing to explain things. We don't all go through the same school of planning. I actually just saw it on, there's a conversation on Twitter today about you don't need to manage, train people, you, you just get the casting right. And I was like, mm. No, I, I think we all need to be trained, whether that is the, this is what planning is, but it's also what you're talking about in your earlier question is 
you know, the, the way we treat ourselves and the giving people confidence and being a cheer squad for those younger planners. Mm. In Australia, we have some great, like we have Planning Idol, which is a planning award for young people. And then um, things, you know, putting them up for those awards and really encouraging them because that stuff's really important when you're, when you're young and giving them good creative opportunities, not always taking them for yourself is the classic one as well mm-hmm. so and and working collaboratively I've, I've the departments I've worked on I've had a structure which is two planners on each account like a lead and a support planner and sometimes the lead can be a junior and then supported by me and that gives them a chance to thrive but feel secure not just thrown into it and then on the flip side they get to come along to meetings and be involved in pictures I'll often bring juniors into a pitch to present with me, you know, and I'll give them, I don't want to use the word sandwich, that feels weird, but, you know, a bit in the middle, I'll talk and then they'll do something and then I'll come back. And it's really great for their confidence. They always step up to it. And I think it's also good having that idea of a a team of planners rather than, again, I'm the smartest person in this agency as the head of Mm -hmm. planning and you have to listen to everything I say. Yep, yep, love it. Love it. Two thoughts there that stuck with me. One is the idea of training and practice. In many other fields, the best people in the world practice all the time and they play a little bit. But for some reason in our industry, the idea is that if you practice, you're not good. I think that's a bit of the idea or that you're fully formed and you're just supposed to be amazing and it's some bizarre mystical power that you've inherited, whatever that is. It's, it's so bizarre. Uh, and the second one, it's I, love crazy. I love the idea of the, the lead and support and that that's not about age or seniority. I see that in sport. Like I, I see it in youth academy mm. soccer where they'll bring in a coach, the coach will get a couple of years under the belt and then they'll bring in a new coach who will spend time with that coach for a year or so and then pick up a separate team it helps make sure that the coaching technique there's some thread through it all so that's really interesting okay insights yeah we're at number 14 mm-hmm. so we're going to go quickly how can someone get good at insights this is a very hard question because I, I think it's it's such gut feel of what a good insight is but my thing with insights is don't overuse the word insight but also don't stop after the first insight always try and seek two more that are better. That would be what I would say because I think you can fall in love with an answer sometimes and you've always got to say there might be something better. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're a junior, a younger planner, there's a lot of insights that have been used a billion times but you don't, you're not as aware of them when you're just starting out. Yeah, that's the falling in love with one's own thinking is a trap. But you, you have to do it enough and then you need distance. Books on writing talk about writing, getting it out, putting it in the drawer, leave it as long as you can. And then you can try to come back at it with some kind of fresh eyes. Yeah. I like that as well. The usefulness of insights is always a tricky one. Like us, you know, someone might be like, oh, wow, people don't go to church anymore. They go to the gym or something. And you're like, okay, how is that useful for a creative? That's the thing I always think as well. How, how is this useful to the work or moving the business forward? Or yeah, what does it mean? Is the Mm. question I always put over insights. Uh, we're at 15. Can you give me one? What's a, what's a problem that you hear younger planners talk about a lot? I hear them talk about imposter syndrome, which we were, we were kind of touched on before. That term wasn't around as much when I was younger. But I also think that we're not allowed to be inexperienced as planners because we have to, it's quite a senior job, even though you've done it for like two seconds, you're automatically in the senior meetings. So I would just say, just let a bit of time pass and you'll actually get experience and be better at the job and have faith in that you don't have to know everything three years in or even six years in 
Okay, I like, yeah, imposter syndrome. It's obviously a phrase that's popped up in popularity recently, and I think there's a danger in that. In that, it's it's easy to identify and then just dwell on, as opposed to say, you know what, maybe I'm just anxious because I want to do a good job. Let me do a good job. Yeah, and that I don't actually know what I'm doing as well as what I will in five years from now. Like it's and that's okay. I'll just keep mm. learning. And then you mentioned time being useful as far as dealing with the challenge of that we're not really allowed to be inexperienced. Are there any other techniques to deal with that is it just a matter of patience yeah a matter of patience and also like yeah patience but also being hungry to learn and I think one of the big problems in our industry is if I was a client looking for a new agency I would go into the pitch and I would say can you explain to me how advertising works and I bet you would get such an uncomfortable like awkward response and different people in the room would say different things and there's a lot of going back and doing my psych degree a few years ago, there is really clear evidence on sort of how advertising works and it would be very easy for everyone in the industry to kind of read up on that. So I would say as a planner, you know, keep consuming and reading and understanding those things so you can be confident if a question like that ever comes your way. Uh, And as far as, I'm going to call this 17, as far as staying up to date with that kind of science, where can someone look? There's lots of nice, lots of new planning books that are, up on it. I mean, be up on the basics at the least, be up on the long and the short of it and how to plan, how not to plan, sorry, is a really good book. Yeah, that's a really great Bible of just pick up, you know, put down. I would say have that on your desk. There's that book of all the biases, which which is quite good as well. Um, Is that that Richard Shotton's or is it one of the Yeah, The Choice Factory, The Choice Factory. Yeah, that's quite good. But how, How Not to Plan is a really great, simple way. But you can go on, you know, that's what's great about the internet. It's infinite. You can find so much information on, in terms of the world of psychology, you can just go into, you know, psych.org and things like that and find stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've got three more. Give me, give me one more that, one more challenge that you've seen with planners that we haven't discussed yet. I think a challenge with planners sometimes is, and I think this is an industry thing as well. This is not a major challenge, but it is a challenge. Unfortunately, our industry favours extroverts because of the notion of presenting and dealing with people. It's such a social kind of industry. And I think we miss out on a lot of great planners and probably creatives because they're not good at the selling or the big standing up and presenting and those sorts of things. And I think that's a real shame. And I, I don't really know what the solution is other than just being super empathetic and encouraging of people and understanding rather than being brutal don't lose hope and um, find people that will be your champion would be the advice I'd give to those people so you studied psychology what is one of your favorite go-to psychology books the thing that I loved most when I studied psychology other than understanding the brain how it processes information the complexities around memory and attention which the advertising industry doesn't even go anywhere near tapping into and by the way any neuromarketing is absolute bullshit so as a side note is the psychology of morality which is so interesting and you could just um hate is the the sort of lead researcher on it h-a-i-d-t it's really fascinating if you look at the world through this lens well, it helps to explain how different we are and why we're different and why we don't understand each other so why 
right-wing people and left-wing people can't get along basically and that was a real eye-opener and I find that found that really inspiring it explains things like why people are against something you might see as obvious like gay marriage for example you know you might be like well what's the problem it's not harming anyone but it explains that that's violating the idea of purity which you might not value and they see that as um, violating that, so it gets them really upset and has a, gives you a really strong emotional response. All right, we're up to we're up to twenty. We made it here, Lucy. Let, let's do a little bit of a big one. Sometimes these big questions are not the best questions, and sometimes someone can navigate their way to a good answer. Not always. Right now, we see strategy roles in more places than ever, in more countries than ever. There are probably more strategists than ever. If if someone's a few years into a strategy career, at the same time as there's a lot of bouncing around of the industry and margins are shrinking in parts of the industry and with strategy moving into more types of companies and not all of those companies knowing what to do with it, how can someone have a flourishing, energetic career? I guess my answer to that would be to try and distill what it is you love about being a planner and working out if you can still do that. Um, So if it's working with creatives or if it's insights or and thinking about, you know, other areas that you might flourish in if you sidestepped. But I do think planning is a very specialist skill early on. I sometimes think that about my career. I think, wow, I went like quite specialist early and it is tricky to sidestep out of, but you do, obviously I've got this psychology train that I want to get to in my twilight years. So I've thought about the kind of 2.0 of what I like about advertising. That's what, that's what I did. I analyzed what some of the things I love. I love the creativity, but I love the psychology. That's a really great job for a 65 year old lady. So I'm going to aim for that. So I guess it's, yeah, it's about distilling what you really love and are you doing it? And if you're not, move on. And that's, that's not very great advice, is it? But always coming back is, am I enjoying, what do I love? And am I doing that? And always analysing that. Oh, I think that makes complete sense. And over time, you might understand what you love about it in a deeper way and even a simpler way. So you might like to write and then you're like exactly well that's right <laughs> but when you're that, young, that's, like, it. That's, that's almost too simple a thing for me to do i can't just write who does that i need all this complexity and then when you're a bit older you're like oh let me just write all day <laughs> yeah and you do change as you get older the same things don't thrill you as much and um other things suit you more and um yeah there are those things like I, you know i love that too i love the way the framing of language can completely change its meaning and things like that but but it's I think it is healthy to think oh do I want to be doing this when I'm 50 maybe you do um or maybe you don't but having a having a think about that so for the very 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 last question the last challenge facing planners number 21 we'll call it 21 we probably skipped some numbers and maybe there <laughs> maybe there maybe there are 10 and a half maybe there are 50 I don't know but I was taking notes What makes planning and the planning career a difficult career from which to sidestep? Hmm. I think it's complicated. I think the first thing is related to what we talked about at the beginning, which is planning is a little bit arbitrary in a lot of ways and it's half doing some things like you don't fully manage the campaign or you don't fully necessarily do some of those project management tasks that maybe might go into other areas more easily. But I also think that you need to have confidence that you would know you'd be able to manage those sorts of things. It is a very specialist task that people aren't 
that familiar with and aren't familiar with the skills and the values that you have. But I guess to remind yourself that, you know, as planners, we are good at framing things and reframing words and to just think about what we do in that uh, that applies in different ways you know we talked about it earlier with you know goes into writing or psychology and things like that but I guess there's also the you get used to the comforts of you know you spend so long battling it out as a planner and being good at it and finding your way in it and it is hard Um, and then you start to it starts to pay off and you start earning more money and you creative agencies are generally there's a lot of there are a lot of positive things about it and it's hard to sort of walk away from that and have the courage to leave those structures and your you know your comfort where you've got your account service people looking out for you hopefully and things like that where you feel sort of at home and very useful and yes yeah, stepping out of your comfort zone and having the courage to do something else I think is quite scary um, and yeah losing that income I mean from a pragmatic point of view when you start moving on you might have a family and you have to consider things like that but all those boring sorts of things but I, I had a cup of tea with um, Sarah who wrote um, how not to plan um, who's been at DDB for a very long time and she gave me the advice to read this book called the hundred year life which is essentially assume you're going to live to a hundred and you sort of do need to plan your life for that and figure out yeah what what you want to do and what's going to keep you happy and and also know that what make what made you happy in your 20s is different from your 30s from your 40s and just listen to that Ooh, I got to read that because that's what I'm trying to do. And every now and then, you know, when you live a little bit more of that independent life, cash flow is not like a salary where a salary, if you're lucky, is predictable because that's what a salary is. And and then I have to remind myself, you know what, this is, this is about the rest of my life. You know, if I'm going to yeah, exactly. I'm gonna do yeah. a talk or a book, it's the start of all the other talks and books or whatever else is going to come. Yeah. I mean, we, we're trained to be okay with that when we're younger. Oh, you know, I mean, it's the decision you make when you go to uni over going straight into work or taking a crummy I mean I remember when I started in advertising I worked insane hours like insane but I loved it and I, I kind of think wow they really took my youth um but I earned you know a very low salary but it was you know an investment and yeah you have to be willing to take those hits mm. and be be positive about it and see it as an investment you know, we, we're all about short-term investment, long-term investment in terms of our brands. And maybe it, I've never thought about it like this, but, you know, if you go back to the, the 60-40 rule of put 60% of your investment in sort of the long-term you, um, long-term brand, if you think about that in terms of yourself and what you're doing in your daily life, what are you investing in now that's going to help you in the long-term versus short-term? It's actually not a bad way of looking at it. Yes, I enjoy that thought and I'm going to you borrow that when people ask me for advice and just say well yeah lucy cochran said 60 40 oh no but the six the 60 40 rule i'm taking it from planning the long and the short of it it's like the you know the brand (laughs) i know and you know what just in case other people haven't heard what the 60 40 rule is or, or the research behind it before you go could you just summarize it for us quickly yeah, well, if you haven't read the long and the short of it, you can Google it. It's essential, absolutely essential reading as a planner. Like you have to read it. It's a meta-analysis of all of the effective campaigns or it's over a thousand campaigns, I think, over the last 20 or 30 decades. I'm going to get pulled up on all of these things. But it distills what makes advertising work and it uses statistical analysis to kind of hone in on and work at some basic rules around what works to maximize effective advertising and one of the rules is 
Um, the industry has got an issue with short-termism because marketing directors often have short-term KPIs, not their fault, or they're in a job for a year. So all they care about is getting sales in the next quarter or the next year at the most. Whereas for a brand to grow the business, you really need to invest in it long-term. And they've come across this 60-40 rule, and it's obviously not don't follow it by the death for every single situation. But it's a really good guide when you're thinking how much investment should go into short-term brand or marketing activities. So things like sales promotion or promoting those quick sales call to action kind of activities versus the more emotional investment into the brand, the more emotional driven activity, which is putting that long-term investment into the brand, which will pay off in the longer term. I've never thought about it like this, but you could apply that to your own life a little bit and thinking about in your daily life, what are you doing to invest in your long-term future versus your short-term? Yeah. And if, if someone is not investing in themselves in the long-term way, in, in, in an intentional way, because everything we do, we learn from and we can apply it later. So there's some always some investment as long as you're an, an active, engaged member of society and doing yeah. a little bit of bit of that thing called thinking but if if the 60 40 thing seems a little bit large start with 10 percent long term 20 percent long term stretch yourself it's okay you'll get there lucy cochran welcome to new york where can people find Thank you, on you. The internet? um i'm on twitter i'm probably less vocal than i used to be my handle is lucy cochran without an e awesome All right at lucy cochran uh lucy thanks so much for joining me on sweathead today i think we were ambitious and we covered a lot of good ground in our 21.33 challenges facing strategists slash planners right now and what to do about it. Peace.